request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420-3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3DB, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420-3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk with the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. This week, we speak to a true radio journeyman who made his mark on more than a dozen stations across three states over five decades. Brian Lehman has a unique radio history. This is the Brighter 2UE, Channel 95, where you're hearing things. Hey, Brian Lehman, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. G'day, Paul. Nice to be with you, mate. Now, you're a Sydney boy and a distinguished alumnus of the Randwick Boys High School. How were those early days at school and what sort of a student was Brian Lehman? Uh, he was a student that couldn't wait to get out of school, I think. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, in kind of a hurry to get into radio, Paul. I uh, stayed in school until just before my 15th birthday. Uh, in fact, Back in those days, you had to get permission to leave school before 15, and I was turning 15 in uh, what would have been fourth year, but I wanted to leave in third year. Anyway, that's a bit of a long story, but I uh, I had my three years at uh, Randwick Boys High School, which is probably a bit politically incorrect these days to call it Randwick Boys High School. Maybe it's Randwick Persons High School, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that was me, and uh, an average sort of a student who... Uh, did okay in English, but was not too good in maths. That's basically it. So when and where did the interest in radio evolve? I think it evolved from, uh, thanks to my parents, thank heavens for them. Uh, the radio seemed to always be on in the layman house. Uh, there was, when the radio wasn't on, there was music being played. Uh, my dear old dad used to uh, have his record player, and uh, I remember, you know, early days, music like... Uh, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, that sort of vintage, and uh, yeah, listening to listening to the radio and all, all the songs that were happening. I'm talking about, uh, or I suppose, growing up in the 50s, Paul. Uh, actually, the first radio station I ever set foot in uh, was in 1958, and that was at 2UE. Uh, a show aimed at teenagers called Rumpus Room that many of our older listeners or your older listeners might remember. Uh, the opposition show on 2GB was called Teen Time, so don't laugh. Rumpus Room and Teen Time. Uh, what you had to do, you needed to write in for free tickets to the show. It uh, went to air uh, after school conveni- conveniently at 430 
Uh, I went along there quite a few times. I was fascinated to watch the young guy in the room next door. He was separated by a very big glass window. He had six turntables, a couple of tape recorders, and uh, he was playing all the commercials and all the music, and I thought, gee, this looks like a pretty interesting job for a young bloke. And uh, while one of the musical records was playing, I asked Howard Craven, uh, who was the compere, of course, of uh, Rumpus Room, what this young bloke was called. Howard tells me he's called a panel operator. Why didn't I think of that? Uh, so I made a note of that. So Rumpus Room is uh, on air from 4.30 to 5.30. Uh, I was there because I wanted to see what actually happened when the show ends. I'd heard it happen uh, quite a few times on my radio at home, but that day, back in 1958, as a 14-year-old, I wanted to actually see it happen. So Rumpus Room ends. Everyone now leaves that big room that I now know is called a studio. Everybody except me. And uh, to my great surprise, nobody kicks me out. Nobody says, time to leave. So I just stay there. And uh, beyond that panel operator's room, the little booth, there's another glass window that looks into the control room. Uh, beyond that, there's yet another room, uh, a smaller room. Apparently, this is, this is the, uh, the on-air studio. It contains not much more than a desk, a couple of turntables and a microphone, a pair of headphones. I notice in there a 23-year-old bloke, a tall, skinny bloke. You're allowed to call people tall and skinny in those days. Uh, he was, uh, seemed to be pacing around, seemed to be in a hurry to, to get on the air after Wumpus Room ends. So uh, he walks over to the desk. He sits down and puts on that uh, pair of headphones. And by this stage, the panel operator is playing some kind of an opening theme. He fades it down, and that 23-year-old bloke says, and he says it a lot better than I could ever say it. Hello, this is John Laws with the latest and the greatest. Uh, remember, it's 1958, so he won't be saying hello world until the 60s. <laughs> and then on one of those two turntables on his desk, he plays a record. Uh, some people might remember records, round black things with a hole in the middle. Uh, this one is by Bobby Freeman. And funny, I can still remember it and I can still remember the song after all these years. It's Do You Want to Dance? I call it a rock and roll classic. I think it is. And about halfway through the song, I decide that I'd better not push my luck. So I, I leave the studio to catch the tram home to Bondi Junction. And uh, that's where I live. And on the way home, I decide that uh, I must get myself a job at this radio station, 2UE, at 29 Bly Street in Sydney. Now, Brian, for a young guy with a passion for radio, it must have been a dream come true to be panelling for some of the biggest names in Sydney radio. Tell us a little bit about Ward Pally Austin. Uh, Ward Pally Austin was, um, what can I say? People describe him as a character. He was larger than life. Uh, when I worked with him, Paul, it was at 2UE, as he was just starting to make a name for himself. Uh, you'd probably know that he moved over to 2GB for a little while and then Ray Bean hired him for 2UW where the legend really took off and Ward became an absolute superstar of Sydney radio on 2UW. But back in the early days of uh, 1958, he was a young bloke from 2KA Katoomba uh, and I think he started on Midnight to Dawn uh, to start with there and moved his way up there, eventually ended up doing the drive shift. Uh, a guy that really worked at his job, I, I remember that he, he, 
He did heaps of preparation. He had uh, a card system with all kinds of artist information and uh, all sorts of stuff. Really enjoyed working with him as a young panel operator. And uh, if I've got any claim to fame as a panel operator, I think uh, it might be the fact that I found his opening phrase of any time you're ready, pally. Uh, that came from a, would you believe, a Sammy Davis Jr. live double album called uh, Sammy Davis Jr. live at the Coconut Grove. And I think Ward may have been already calling himself pally on the air in those days. And I heard this... Uh, disc I was playing at one time when I was not on the air, probably in my lunch hour or something, and Sammy Davis Jr. is doing an imitation of Dean Martin, and in that imitation he says, anytime you're ready, pally, and I raced down to Ward's office and I got him to come back and listen to this, and he said, we've got to use that, so we put it on tape, and that became his standard opening uh, before the big theme, so that's my long answer to what sort of a bloke was Ward Austin, an absolute larger-than-life, great radio personality. How about the great Gary O'Callaghan? Gary O'Callaghan, uh, when I got to TUE Breakfast, uh, us young panel operators, uh, I'm saying when I got to TUE, uh, we worked rotating shifts, which means you could be doing night shift one week, afternoon shift the next week, or breakfast uh, the other week. Gary O'Callaghan ended up with his... Uh, own personal panel operator, a man called Alan Black. Uh, but in the meantime, when there were rotating shifts, I got to work with Gary, who was uh, an absolute legend. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. And in the short time that I worked with him, uh, I learned so much watching him at work. And uh, it was a pretty busy shift, the, the breakfast shift on 2UE. Uh, they had four commercials after every record and those records were two minute records from the 60s so you had to really uh have yourself moving along there to to stay on top of things it was a very busy shift and of course gary rated number one for so many years now the first gig behind the microphone was at 2ue doing mid-dawn how was that experience uh it was uh probably the greatest experience of my life at that stage because i was just 19 years old and uh the, the funny thing was, I'd, I'd been a pro, uh, I'd been a panel operator at Two UE for quite some time, and I kind of let it be known that I wouldn't mind getting on the air, and they, they let me practice, and it was in the off-air studio, and uh, there was no country radio experience for me. I was I was thrown straight on the air on midnight to dawn. I guess they figured because I was a panel operator and I knew which buttons to to, to push and how to turn the microphone on that I could probably uh, keep things going for a five-hour shift. I was 19 at the time, and uh, talking about Gary O'Callaghan, what a thrill it was for me to be doing midnight to 5 a.m. Uh, as virtually the warm-up shift to Gary O'Callaghan, who came on and rated number one all over Sydney from 5 a.m. In these days of highly automated programming, how important was it, well, in fact, how important is it, to have some sort of live programming during mid-dawn? Well, in those days, it was the only thing that happened. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you were there, everybody. I started off, uh, as you say, Paul, I started off in Sydney. And I think even at that stage in the 60s, all of the capital city radio stations had a live midnight to dawn shift. And uh, in the case of 2UE, 
you even had a control operator on to make sure that you didn't go off the air. So they regarded it as fairly important as that lead into the breakfast shift. And, uh, you know, your shift was uh, just as busy, maybe not as many commercials, but just as busy as uh, the rest of the the shifts on the radio station with uh, that man in the control room. was always a man, funny about that in those days taking down calls from listeners. We didn't play requests, but we sent good old-fashioned cheerio calls to the shift workers, and, uh, yeah, it was very much a live thing, and uh, I guess that's missing uh, and has been missing on a lot of stations in a lot of markets for quite a while. Okay, Brian, we moved to around 1970, and at the time, Happening Radio 3XY had the big names, Graham Kennedy, Mike Walsh, and a young guy named Brian Lehman doing breakfast. It must have been an interesting time at XY because it seemed like they were trying to combine a personality radio format with Top 40 and it was just before the XY domination of the 70s started. Yeah, that right, uh, Paul. I, I was uh, hired by the great Dick Hemming in 1969. Uh, I'd been working in uh, Tasmania, funnily enough, because I'd heard through the grapevine that uh, if you worked in Tasmanian radio, that was kind of a a gateway to Melbourne radio and I was pretty keen along with my wife to get uh, to Melbourne and uh, you know to work in Melbourne radio so uh, I was working in Launceston in Tasmania or at 7EX and again the good old radio grapevine I heard that uh, there might be a job going at 3XY so I sent an audition tape as you did in those days a sample of your work to uh, 3XY. The great Dick Hemming was the program director of that radio station at the time and he actually wrote back to me a very constructive letter, uh, some uh, constructive criticism about my uh, airwork basically but telling me the bad news was the radio grapevine had got it wrong there was no job at 3XY at the moment but if one came up uh, he would be in touch with me and surprisingly in a few months, uh, Dick Hemming was in touch with me, not by the telephone. He actually flew over from, uh, from 3XY, from Melbourne, and stayed overnight in Launceston at uh, the Launceston Hotel. And he told me later on that he wanted to actually hear my breakfast show without uh, knowing that somebody, without me knowing that somebody was listening, because, uh, you know, you can doctor up audition tapes. Uh, that was Dick's very clever thinking. So uh, he rang me about five past nine after I'd come out off the air and uh, said, come on down and uh, have a chat at the at the Launceston Hotel uh, where he was staying. So uh, went down there and the short version of the story was that he offered me at that stage $80 a week. At the time, I had to say to Dick, I'm already earning $80 a week here, Dick. So uh, without any hesitation, he said, what the hell, we'll make it 90 then. So <laughs> I, went, I, I went to Melbourne Radio to do the night shift for $90 a week. And that was considered reasonable money, I believe, in those days. But uh, yeah, so after a while of the night shift, they decided to put me on breakfast. So uh, uh, going back to your question about what was, it work, what was it like working with all of those great stars, it was amazing because... Um, I did breakfast until 8.30am and then Mike Walsh came on and did 8.30 till 11am, uh, complete with a panel operator and I think he had a producer 
and uh, maybe a researcher in those days. Then at 11 a.m., uh, via landline from his uh, house at Frankston by the sea, the king, Graham Kennedy, came on between 11 o'clock and 1. Uh, amazing times uh, to be there. And then the, it continued th through the day. Uh, Jeff Sunderland did the afternoon shift. Jeff Sunderland, of course, became an absolute legend on Adelaide Radio and Breakfast Radio, sadly no longer with us, uh, a, a great man of radio that we lost. And then uh, the drive time shift at that stage was uh, a man who's become a good mate of mine over the years, uh, Johnny Young did the drive shift and worked 4 o'clock until 8 o'clock uh, in those days. So, yep, they, they were pretty exciting times. Just looking at your competition at breakfast, you had Don Lund at 3UZ, the well-established John Eden at 3DB, Peter Leslie at 3KZ, and a guy who'd become a long-time stable mate at 6IX, John Burgess at AK. Competition was pretty hot there, Brian. It certainly was. Uh, the legendary Don Lund was... Uh, absolutely rating through the roof on breakfast, as you, as you mentioned there, Paul. Uh, some, some big names in Melbourne radio. And uh, in 1970, there was a bit of a change for 3XY because another big name came to, to Melbourne radio. I had to make way for him, but that's what happens in uh, radio these days. No hard feelings, but Rick Melbourne came to 3XY in uh, 1970. We've uh, since worked together at a couple of radio stations. We're, uh, we're good mates from a distance, and we keep in touch. He was uh, the breakfast announcer there in uh, 1970, I seem to recall. I got a job there. Uh, I got a job not much later at 3AK, working with the great Rhett Walker, who I would have to say is the best program director I ever worked for. Uh, I noticed uh, you were talking to uh, some uh, old old uh, colleagues of mine from DB Music uh, recently, and both Dennis Scanlon and uh, Gary Mack, and also Brendan Sheedy have all said great words about Rhett Walker, what a, a wonderful program director he was. And at uh, 3AK, you, the big names continue. You mentioned John Burgess at that stage. Uh, yep, Burjo was doing uh, breakfast on 3AK. Gary and Mike Nichols, the Nichols brothers, were doing uh, shifts on the radio station. Bill Howie, Alan Aitken, Gary Mack, as I mentioned. Yorkie, Lionel York, Graham Boyd, Bill Howie. And uh, oh, there was a bloke called Barry Mann at 3AK, but that was actually me. Rhett tells me that Brian Lehman doesn't sound like a jock's name at my job interview, so he says, uh, we're going to change it. So uh, that was an instant identity crisis for me. It changes my name to Barry Mann. He said, Barry's a good Australian-sounding name, and he said, Mann, you can keep half of Lehman. So uh, I was Barry Mann for, for during the, the Brinkley's uh, format of of 3AK. A couple of years later, they changed format to Beautiful Music, and I'm allowed to change my name back to Brian Lehman. Now, with that change of name, did Barry Mann broadcast with a harder edge than Brian Lehman to keep it in line with the Wrinkley's campaign? Yeah, that's uh, very well spotted there, actually, Paul, because that was with, with Rhett's direction. 
um, and and he gave wonderful direction for what he actually wanted on the radio station, you know, and he, he recognised that uh, I had a bit of a hard edge, so he said, I want you to to, to um, concentrate on that. Uh, in other words, don't, don't be... I mean, be Mr. Nice Guy, but don't be, you know, Mr. Sickly Sweet Nice Guy. So, yeah, yeah, that was an interesting time, and uh, I enjoyed my time there in, in both formats. Now, it would seem like the move to 3DB in 1976 to join DB Music was quickly negotiated after the exodus of the on-air talent from DB to 3KZ. However, you were in Perth at the time, so how did you get back east? Well, at that stage, in uh, 1976, 6KY changes format to beautiful music. Uh, I've had the beautiful music format before, uh, so uh, I'm off to 6pm uh, in Perth to escape that dreaded beautiful music, but not for long, because Brendan Sheedy, who was the long-time program director of 6pm, and also I'd worked with him at 3AK, He's now PD of uh, DB Music in Melbourne, so we've known each other and worked together at, uh, at a couple of radio stations. Rick Melbourne, as you mentioned, has just resigned, taking with him Ted Bull, Ron O'Neill and the newsman Robert Hicks. There was a, a lot of publicity at the time. I think they referred to it in the Melbourne papers as the Great Radio Raid or the Great Radio Walkout uh, when Rick and Ron O'Neill and Robert Hicks all went off to uh, 3KZ. So Brendan, at this stage, is uh, offering me Rick's job as breakfast announcer at DB Music. He'd changed the whole format, of course. It used to be 3DB. So it's, it's back to Melbourne for me. That's how I got to Melbourne again. Uh, not a bad little radio station with Graham Kennedy doing afternoons along with Dennis Scanlon. And uh, we'll remember some other big names at the time. Alan Aitken, who was doing the drive shift. Gary Mack, who I've mentioned, another good mate and a radio legend. He was doing nine to noon. Steve Britton was on air too. He went on to become the long-time voice of Channel 9. He's still there today. Uh, other people that I worked with at DB Music, Greg Smith and Jeff Cox. Paul Thompson put those two guys together as Smithy and Cox, and they did a night show together that uh, rated really well. Of course, we know what happened with those two guys. Greg Smith came on to become an absolute legend of a program director, group program director for Austereo. Jeff Cox is uh, a legend with his own television show, a musician, a drummer, and at one stage was playing with LRB. Uh, during my time also at DB Music, it was interesting that uh, it was kind of fashionable to, to knock uh, disco music, but... Uh, I was asked to do the disco show, and in spite of disco being, like I say, uh, some people kind of knock it, I quite enjoyed the disco show, and, and it uh, seemed to rate fairly well too. It was no doubt an interesting time at the radio station, and from your point of view, did the sudden changing of the guard and the publicity that went with it galvanise the station, or did it disrupt it? I think galvanised is a pretty good word. Uh, in fact, uh, the story that I heard was that uh, following that, uh, let's call it the great walkout, uh, Graham Kennedy actually rang Brendan Sheedy. I think Brendan may have told the story and said, you know, that's a um, pretty difficult position you're in there, Brendan. Is there anything I can do to help? And Brendan apparently said, well, I wouldn't mind putting you on the air. And uh, that's how that all came about. And... Uh, 
Graham started listening to the radio station. He was a particular fan of Dennis Scanlon and uh, said he wouldn't mind doing a two-man show with Dennis. So, uh, yeah, uh, that, 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 that happened. Uh, I was into breakfast. I seem to recall that at that stage, Gary Mack moved into nine to noon. Uh, Graham Kennedy, along with Dennis Scanlon, and they were <laughs> Graham used to refer to as... Uh, the King and his faithful companion Tonto, they did the afternoon shift. You had Alan Aitken doing drive and then those various other guys uh, that, that I mentioned doing various parts of nights and midnight to dawn. So, yeah, interesting times. Track road, the trend is meet. Shoppers stroll down live on street. market sellers now, 3KZ was your next major move right around the time of the very successful I Love Melbourne campaign. How'd you end up there? That was a bit of a roundabout journey, as it always is in radio. In 1978, I was offered a job as part of a two-man or, let's say, two-person show on 3AW, the talk station. Uh, I thought at the time that could be interesting. The other half of the team was Doug Mulway. And I remember thinking at the time, this bloke's a bit too funny to be here. Uh, we had a one-year contract, really enjoyed it, really had some laughs together. Uh, but our one-year contract, love the security of radio, it came to an end. And then we went our separate ways. Doug Mulway, of course, off to Rod Muir's Triple M after a, a brief stopover over at the ABC. Triple J, or was it maybe... Uh, double J back then. And then I went to 3KZ Melbourne, as you mentioned, Paul. Uh, Paul Thompson hired me for afternoons. And then promptly after that, Paul sort of pulled the pin and went to build Adelaide's first FM station, SAFM. Uh, I stayed there for a little while and uh, not too much later, I got the job of program director, thanks to Les Heil, who gave me that job. And I'm very thankful to him, even to this day, because I had not been a program director before. Uh, worked with the executive team of Les Heil, Jim Hilke, Kevin O'Gorman and Peter Rinaldi, all Melbourne radio legends. Plenty, plenty of uh, legends on air, too. Peter O'Callaghan and Kevin John, both sadly no longer with us, to... Uh, to say they were colleagues and mates is uh, it's way beyond that for me those two guys missing them still to this day uh, proud to say that I hired Kevin for his first on-air job in Melbourne radio and the same with uh, a man called Steve Price not to be confused with the Steve Price on the project this one 3KZ Steve Price was our production manager and one of the best in Melbourne at the time. Uh, but he was keen to get on air, so I put him on some Midnight to Dawns. Uh, Steve just recently celebrated 30 years on breakfast in Townsville, where he is absolutely a local icon. Uh, other great names during my time at 3KZ were Peter Meehan, Moya O'Shea, who has become a superstar in London, and who could forget the captain and the major, Ian Major and Jack Dyer, heading our footy coverage. Robert Hicks ran a brilliant newsroom, and uh, while I was at 3KZ, I came up with an idea and implemented a Saturday night show called Six O'Clock Rock. Uh, I was always a bit worried that Johnny O'Keefe's family might sue us. They never did. Now at KZ, there was the duo of Lehman and O'Shea for breakfast, because there's apparently still room for great music and a few laughs before the day begins. How did that partnership come about, 
And what was it like working with Moya? Oh, it was fantastic. She is such a talent. And uh, that, that was uh, an idea put together by the programming people at, at, at that stage, um, or, or rather the executive team at that stage. And they thought it might be a good idea to, to have us both on the air. They'd, they tried that for a little, little while. It didn't quite work out the way that uh, they thought it would. Uh, so Moya went on to other things within the radio station. She was a vital part of it. She was one of the most creative people there. Uh, she implemented the KZ Koala show for, for the kids. This was a result of uh, Todd Wallace and Bill Clements, the very successful consultants that we had in the, in the place. Earlier on, you were asking me about the, uh, the 3KZ I Love Melbourne campaign. Moya was uh, a vital part of that. Uh, she contributed so much to uh, the background of that with the, with the I Love Melbourne jingle, the imaging of the, the radio station, the, the promos that were involved with it, the creativity of capturing what Melbourne was all about. And uh, she, she just went on to be an absolute star. As I, as I said, went to London, became a, a star of... Uh, you name it. She's a writer. She's a voiceover person. She's an actress, and uh, we're still in touch with her. She is such a, a, a dedicated uh, fan of 3KZ that when uh, and I'm getting a bit emotional talking about it. Um, when Peter O'Callaghan passed away, which uh, was 2016, Moya made the trip back from London to come to the funeral. Uh, we, we were all there, but. Uh, yeah. Now, Brian, there were obviously a number of hard decisions you had to make as program director. However, one question still remains: Why didn't Rachel ever get her own show? That was a that was a standing joke between Moya and me. That that was the punchline. Uh, Rachel was a character uh, that Moya invented. She had a boyfriend called Attila, uh, which we thought was pretty funny. And Rachel used to come in uh, with her little pre-recorded segments, actually. And at the end of every one, uh, she, she was kind of auditioning by being funny. And uh, she'd end every one of her segments by saying, Brian, can I have my own show? And the answer was always the same. Not just yet, Rachel. <laughs> We are chatting with Brian Lehman on Pilots of the Airwaves. And these days, Brian, you make Perth your home and you've had strong affiliations with a number of stations, including 6PM, 6KY and, of course, 6IX. Tell us a little bit about the Perth market, what the attraction was and why it's now your base. OK, a good question or a good series of questions there, Paul. I'll tell you, first of all, how I ended up back here. I had three uh, very happy years at 3KZ from 1979 through until 1982. Went to 3MP in Melbourne for all of 1983 as program director, the so-called offer I couldn't refuse. And uh, in this particular year, towards the end of it, I drove to work in the rain listening to Alan Bond winning the America's Cup. Uh, that was the year, 1983. I got to work. Uh, we had the television set on all day in those days. No internet back in those days, but the newsroom had the TV going all day. Uh, I saw Bob Hawke in that silly coat dropping his classic line about any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up at work today is a bum. Um, I think that was at Fremantle Yacht Club. I noticed uh, some of my old 
Perth mates in the background there, Channel 9's Bruce Walker laughing in the background and a few other people, and suddenly I felt very homesick. So uh, that night when I got home from work from 3MP, I said to my wife, I think it's time to go home, and she agreed. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was time to go. I made a few phone calls the next day, and uh, in January of 1984, I moved with my family back to Perth to my new job as breakfast announcer at 6IX. As you mentioned, had quite an affiliation with them for quite a few years. Uh, this move that I made was thanks to Greg Smith, who was uh, doing a bit of consulting work for 6IX at that stage before moving, moving to uh, Adelaide to join Paul Thompson at SAFM. Now, just four years later... Those two men were the original manager and group program director of Osterio, uh, and they hired me for their new radio station, which was really just my old radio station, uh, 6IX. They gave it a new call sign. It was known as the Eagle. Uh, I did the morning zoo. We were the first uh, in the market to do the uh, group of uh, people at, at breakfast time, the zoo, the, the crew, the bunch, it's all been there. Uh, but I think we were the original, thanks to uh, Paul and Greg. We did the morning zoo with Greg Meyer, who was known as Gregarious, Sue Garrett, she was known as the morning Sue, clever, uh, David Christensen and Jeff Warden. And it was a cast, of, a cast of thousands, really. Other people at the station that I remember very fondly, uh, Dean Clares, who's just made a big move over here in Perth, to take on breakfast at 96 FM uh, to replace the legendary Fred Boddicker. But uh, back in those days, Dean was a young guy from Adelaide who just joined us at the Eagle. John Gardner, a well-known man about town and a good radio bloke. Uh, Tony Hartney and a few others that I can't remember because I'm getting on a bit. Uh, the Eagle missed out on their licence to convert to the FM band, so Osterio sold it to Radio West the station uh, returned eventually to the 6IX call sign. So uh, I worked there off and on, came back at the start of 1995 and pretty much stayed there until I retired. That was uh, now six years ago in 2015. Uh, during my time at 6IX this time around, I worked with great people like Mark Pascoe, who is... Uh, fast becoming or has become a legend in Perth Radio. He's over on 96FM and he's a great mate of mine. Another good mate is Yorkie, Lionel York, Burjo, John Burgess. Johnny Young came back to Perth for uh, quite a few years and did breakfast uh, before, uh, before Burjo did it. And Johnny Young had a producer called Narelle Bell who went on to uh, star in her wonderful Karen Carpenter tribute show. Other people that I worked with uh, over the years at 6IX include John Cranfield, Tony Hartney, Leo Nelson, Peter Rowe, various other announcers, and uh, some great off-air people, too numerous to mention. I did my last on-air shift on 6IX on uh, July 9, 2015, and uh, Paul, I think... Basically, that's it, mate. Yeah, not quite, Brian. Now, the US, of course, were kept up to date with chart movements with the legendary Casey Kasem and American Top 40. However, we weren't left behind with the equally legendary Brian Lehman and Australia's Top 15. Was that a career highlight for you, Brian? Wow, you've been uh, delving into my past. Where did you find out about that? <laughs> 
it's a very interesting story, and if you've got a, a, about half an hour, I can tell you, but I'll, I'll try and uh, chop it down very quickly uh, because I, I think it might be a bit of an interesting story. Uh, I, was at wo- I was working at 3AK. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember what year this was happening. I think it may have been about 1972, and I had an idea for... Uh, an Australian version of uh, American Top 40, and I called it the Australian Top 15. And uh, we actually got it off the ground. We got it on a few country radio stations, or we have to call them regional radio stations in uh, Victoria. But uh, a couple of interesting things about it, Paul. Uh, There was a, a, a man called Bob Stewart also working at 3AK, he became a legend in radio uh, at 96FM. I think he's fairly well retired these days. But we were pretty good mates at 3AK back in the day and we decided to uh, go into this idea together and uh, get this idea of the Australian Top 15 off the ground. Uh, just as it was getting off the ground, I think Bob got a big offer to go to 2SM in Sydney. So uh, he was gone and very successful at 2SM and then over to Perth, uh, very successful on Perth radio stations, as I mentioned. And uh, I took on the uh, Australian Top 15 on my own, got it off the ground. And an interesting sideline to that, as we've just witnessed uh, uh, the very emotional uh, state funeral for Michael Gudinski, uh, he was... uh, very much a part of that in those early days. Mushroom Records was just starting off and uh, he, he gave me a lot of uh, encouragement in, in, in programming, a, 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 well, let's say, a program that featured uh, Australian music and, of course, Mushroom was just getting off the ground and, uh, yeah, the great Michael Kudinski, a, a very young man in those days, but uh, encouraged me to go ahead with it and I... I've remembered that for a very long time. Okay, Brian, as we do with all of our guests, there's a dozen or so quick-fire jock questions that generally starts off with, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was at 3KZ and I was about to change my shift from breakfast to drive. And uh, I remember it like yesterday, as you do. Uh, I'd been program director, as I mentioned, thanks to Les Heil, and I'd been combining that with the uh, shift of breakfast, and it was a little bit wearing, and we both agreed that it was time to make a change. So we put uh, a great man called Chris Smith, who's sadly no longer with us, into breakfast, and I was doing the drive shift. And for some reason, that was my very first day on the drive shift. And I was wondering, what am I going to do to make my drive shift a little bit different? And two hours before it began, Robert Hicks from the newsroom came in to me and said, John Lennon has just died. Wow. The last concert ticket you paid for? Uh, Well, I didn't go to too many concerts last year. I don't think many of us did. Uh, So the last one I paid for, I think, let's say, Bob Dylan uh, at Perth Arena. A stunning one in, uh, when was that, about 2018, I think, two or three years ago, yeah. Is there a concert act that you regret not seeing? don't have too many regrets about concerts that I haven't seen, but I sometimes um, think that I wouldn't mind 
if I'd seen Frank Sinatra when he came to town. Again, Michael Gdinsky, who I mentioned earlier, apparently was uh, the promoter for Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. and Liza Minnelli back in 1989. Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't have minded seeing that one. The word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air. It's a ridiculously simple word and I still have trouble with it. It's Saturday. And we had some we had some great young production guys at 3AK, and uh, oh, there was Nigel Haynes, uh, Andrew Wiltshire, and uh, there was a guy called Brad Fry, who used to stop me every time I did an ad where I said Saturday because he was saying that I was calling it Saddle Day. So uh, very conscious of that still. <laughs> Now, Brian, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? No, I don't think there was, really. Uh, I think that must be because I'm a very boring person uh, or maybe I don't do anything very controversial. Um, but no, I can't think of any where I thought, uh-oh, that's it, it's all over now. But um, could be wrong. <laughs> Never boring, Brian. Hey, listen, Skyhooks or Sherbert? Uh, I've got to say Skyhooks. And I go back to my, um, my Perth years in 1974. Again, Michael Gadinsky coming into the conversation quite a bit, and so he should, anything to do with Australian music. In 1974, I was doing the, the night shift on, uh, on 6KY. We played rock and roll. It was full-on rock and roll, and we waited fairly well, I seem to recall. Graham Cherry, uh, a big name in uh, Melbourne radio from 3UZ, he was actually the program director at 6KY when he hired me in 1973, I think it was. So in 1974, I'm on the night shift, and... Uh, Graham Cherry has arranged for a live interview in the studio with this up-and-coming young group. And he, he said that uh, they'll be coming in, uh, let them in. It's, it's after hours, the building's locked, but they'll be hitting the buzzer or, or whatever they did in those days at the front door. Make sure you let them in. Uh, the group is called Sky Hooks. Uh, they'll have Michael Gudinski looking after them. So sure enough, right on time. Uh, as scheduled, around about 8 o'clock at night, there was a buzz at the front door. The entire Skyhooks team were there. Uh, Michael Gudinski, a very young man in those days, but uh, keeping an eye on them and looking after them and making sure that everything was going smoothly. And we got into the studio for, um, for an interview. I was playing on my track, probably using a turntable at the time. I think I might have been playing Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, and I wanted to play a track from their brand-new album, but it was so brand-new that they didn't have a copy of it. They only had a reel-to-reel tape. So it's, I had to queue up side one, track one, of this reel-to-reel tape just as I'm running out of time on Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, and we were still off air, and just before we were about to go on air, I had no idea. I'd, I'd queued up track one, side one, and I've said to Cheryl, who, who I've met maybe three minutes beforehand, what's side one, track one called, Shirley? And he said, living in the beep 70s, Brian, what do you reckon? <laughs> and that, and that, 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 that was off air. And, uh, and then, then we were on air about 30... 30 seconds later, and we became mates, uh, and it, that, that was, I seem to recall, 
at that stage, Skyhooks were a brand new group and they weren't even top of the bill. The dingoes were top of the bill. Twelve months later, Skyhooks were filling up the big Edgeley Entertainment Centre and we used to go out to the airport to meet them and good old Shirley would always uh, come in the 6KY colour car uh, with Red Simon, Red Simons and uh, we, we'd, we'd drive him into, into their hotel in the, city, in the city and do yet another interview. And I, I saw Shirley many years later in Melbourne and uh, it was just great to catch up with him and sadly we lost him far too young at the age of 49. So that's my long answer to... Uh, Sherbert versus Skyhooks got a lot of time for Daryl and the boys of Sherbert of course but Skyhooks um, that was the, the start of it all for them and for me That's a great yarn, what about the Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Oh, I have to say pass, that's too hard they're, they're, they're both fabulous Yeah, don't normally let our guests sit on the fence there Brian but we'll let you get away with it this time Hey listen, is there a most treasured piece of memorabilia from those rock and roll radio days? Uh, I don't actually have a hard copy of it, but uh, it's probably something that I've seen, a TUE Top 40 chart uh, where, I was, where I was on Midnight to Dawn and they actually included Layman's photograph uh, along with all the other guys that were on air at the time. Bob Rogers, John Laws, Scott Newman, which of course was the on-air name for the fabulous Paul Ricketts, Sam Cronier, Jeff Marshall, and Layman's 19 or 20-year-old face was on that chart as well, and I, I still can't believe it to this day. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air? That would have to be uh, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, uh, 1963, and it was a Saturday morning uh, Australian time, and again... I'm a 19-year-old Midnight to Dawn announcer on 2UE. Because it's a Saturday morning, 2UE don't have their full complement of uh, news people on. Normally, Monday to Friday, during Gary O'Callaghan's breakfast show, uh, there's about five or six people in the newsroom all running around getting all the stories and traffic and weather and who knows what else. But on Saturday morning, uh, being the weekend shift probably, there's just one newsreader on duty. And the Midnight to Dawn is extended on Saturday mornings. It goes 12 till 6 instead of 12 till 5. And would you believe, on this November morning in 1963, that one newsreader actually slept in. So luckily, there's a control operator on deck and he hears the old-fashioned bells ringing on the teleprinter machine which signifies a news flash. And that was the news flash that John F. Kennedy had just been shot in Dallas in Texas. And uh, he brings the story in to me uh, sometime that morning and I read the flash on air. Brian, is there someone that you met and you were suddenly starstruck in their presence? It's a toss-up between John Laws and Bob Hope. Now, now there's a... <laughs> an unlikely duo, uh, but John Laws, when I first met him, uh, I saw him at 2UE uh, following that rumpus room show that I went into in 1958. I went there, as I've mentioned, wanted to see John Laws come on the air at 5.30. He was 23 at the time. Uh, it's 1958. I finally got to meet him when I got a job at 2UE a few years later, 
and I'd been listening to him since my high school days, so I was very starstruck to meet Lawsy for the very first time. What a great man. And uh, the other guy, um, talking of legends, I met Bob Hope. I actually interviewed him in his uh, hotel room in Perth, over here in Perth. He'd appeared in front of thousands of people at the big Edgeley Entertainment Centre. It was in 1978 when I was doing the two-man show with Doug Mulway on 3AW. 3AW flew us both over to Perth in the hope of getting an interview with uh, Bob Hope. And uh, I think Doug may have taken off to go back to Melbourne. I stuck around for a little bit longer and finally one of Bob Hope's minders came down and got me and said, Mr Hope will see you now if you've got your tape recorder. So I took my tape recorder and got an interview with Bob Hope in 1978. The best words of advice from a program manager? Uh, Gee, I've had a few over the years and I've had great advice from Rhett Walker, who I mention as probably the greatest program director of them all. And this was advice that he gave to me, but he gave it to all of us at our weekly announcers meetings. He said to you guys, don't be Danny Disc Jockey. He he didn't want us to be Danny Disc Jockey. Uh, He had an American accent, needless to say, Brett. Uh, His his advice to me privately and going through air checks and all the sort of stuff that you used to do, uh, his, his advice was, don't be Danny Disc Jockey, just talk in your natural voice. And uh, that's probably some good advice that I've had from Brett, I think. Yeah. And finally, Brian, two albums that were the soundtrack of your teenage years. Wow, I'll be showing my age here because the very first one that I bought with my own money was uh, a Dwayne Eddy album because I was a bit of a fan of guitar uh, I was taking guitar lessons when I was a kid. wasn't very good at it either. But I bought Dwayne Eddy's 1959 album called Especially For You because I thought he just looked so cool sitting on the cover uh, with his white roll-neck jumper. And I think he had a kind of an orange or pinky kind of Gretsch guitar. And the album contained the classic theme from Peter Gunn. So that was one of my uh, soundtrack of my life type albums. Uh, the other one... I would say it would be that uh, classic Beatles album, With the Beatles, which was released in November of 1963, so it just made it into my teenage years. It was actually their second studio album, uh, eight months after Please Please Me. It was uh, that classic album that we all remember, or some of us older people can remember. With uh, It was in black and white, the cover with uh, just the four heads of John, Paul, George and Ringo. Uh, That album was played all over 1964, but it came out in 1963, and a classic if ever there was one in in my book, with the Beatles. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for your time today and for the fabulous trip down memory lane. Now, you did refer to many of the broadcasters as legends. Just never underestimate your contribution to radio in Australia. It has been most significant. Thanks again. Fantastic, Paul. Great talking to you, mate, and uh, all the best to you and your many listeners. Brian Lehman on Pilots of the Airwaves. <laughs>